Hello and welcome to the 24th episode of the podcast. In this episode, we had the pleasure of speaking with Hannah Claridge, the head of neurotechnology at TTP, a science and technology consulting company which helps founders and entrepreneurs bring ideas to market. This process is called proof of concept to manufacturing, which is something that we talk about a lot in this episode. What it looks like to go through fundraising, different phases of testing, FDA approval, marketing, and all the pieces of the puzzle that need to come together to actually get that healthcare product onto the market. And trust me when I say that this process is a lot more complicated than I had originally thought. We discuss all the super cool research and projects that Hannah has done in the MRI, biosensor, and healthcare space, and her journey from a master's in physics from Oxford University to product-focused work at TTP, and why she decided to make that change from research to product. We also talk about the actual technology of neurotech, like non-invasive versus invasive devices, and the differences and innovations in both, and what neuromodulation is and why it's super important when designing and creating neurotech products. So without further ado, here's our conversation with the amazing Hannah Claridge, my wonderful co-host Sierra Sejour, and myself, Rachel Lee. Enjoy. Okay, so thank you so much for being here, Hannah. We've been super excited for the episode today. You're welcome. Excited to be here. Okay, so I think we wanted to start off with your journey into the neurotech space. So the thing that I find very interesting about your journey into neurotech is that after finishing your PhD at Oxford, you made the decision to switch more from like research into consulting and actually making products at TTP. So I find that super interesting. And I'd love to know what made you want to make the switch from research into more consulting, like bringing products to market. Yeah, so I guess my journey started even before that a little bit. So I studied physics originally, um, just because I was, I, I loved it. I was excited by it. I was really interested in particle physics and in cosmology and in all different kind of aspects of it back when I was at school. So I really just kind of followed my interests, studied physics originally. And then even during my master's project, I started looking really towards the medical field for where could I, where could I apply the physics that I'd learned in a way that I found interesting, but also that had an impact on people. Because I think one of the things I realized during my undergraduate degree was, yes, it was really interesting, genuinely interesting to learn about what's going on in other parts of the universe but in terms of the impact that I could have in my lifetime learning a tiny bit more about that wasn't really for me so even for my master's project I started looking into well what can we learn about the human body what can we do to support medicine in a way that doesn't require me to become a doctor because that's not me Um, but what could I do within the medical space that kind of makes use of the, the skills that I've been developing and the things that I find really fascinating so yeah I did a, a PhD in medical imaging particularly in kind of neuroscience. So looking at the brain and um, different ways of non-invasively measuring blood flow and oxygen metabolism, which could be useful for, for a research perspective, both for healthy aging, for different kind of subpopulations, and also could be really helpful in understanding what happens in people with different kind of disorders, like following a stroke, for example. 
So I, I really loved doing the research, um, but something that I recognized during my PhD was that actually the, the type of research that I was doing, it was really interesting in terms of the kind of academic aspects. How do these methods work? How do you understand what's going on in an MRI scanner? How do you start modeling what's going on in the brain and the physiology? But it was really quite far away from having an impact on stroke patients, which was the that was the kind of headline of at the start of my PhD, right? What can you do to, to help people after, after a stroke to make sure they get the right medication or the right treatment that they need as quickly as possible? And it just became clear to me that that was very much something in the future. We were quite a far way off that. So even during the second half of my PhD, I started looking around and thinking, well, what else can I do that's still in this kind of... Um, medical physics space so still kind of making use of my skills and still trying to apply that to helping people in, in that kind of medical field but what could I do that was a bit closer to reality closer to getting a product out into the market and that's when I came across TTP which is a, as you said it's it's a kind of technology and product consultancy company and TTP helps other companies get new products out onto the market mm-hmm. and a lot of their work is in healthcare so for me it was really really about how can I have an impact sooner and how can I help to develop products that can help people in 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 that healthcare industry yeah oh I love that so much what are some of the projects that you've worked on at TTP um yeah so I have worked on various kind of drug delivery devices so things like inhalers auto injectors looking at how to inject insulin safely for people with diabetes, also how to monitor that. I've also been involved in various measurement devices, so things like continuous blood pressure monitors or monitoring uh, like a kind of cell incubation systems. So how do you keep cells alive and multiplying over time? That can be useful for a whole range of different applications. So cell therapy is one area, for example, recently that we've been doing a lot of work. And now more recently, I've really been focusing on different types of neurotechnologies. So devices that can that can help people with chronic pain or with Parkinson's. So kind of implanted medical devices. Awesome. And I know that we were doing a little bit of research beforehand on kind of the neurotechnology part of TTP. And I know that something that comes up pretty often is neuromodulation. And so before we kind of get deeper into that and some of the aspects of that, can you kind of explain a little bit more in depth, like what exactly neuromodulation is and find about how it helps patients? Yeah, so neuromodulation is really kind of any way of interacting with the human body via electricity. So if you think about the human body, there's different pathways, there's different ways of looking at it. So one way of looking at it is really the biochemistry that's going on. And that's if you think about pharmaceuticals, the way that drugs interact with your body, that's generally speaking, that goes through that kind of biochemistry pathway, infects kind of chemical balance. If you look at the nervous system, that communicates within the body through electrical impulses. And it's just a it's another part of how the body works. And it's something that we haven't really been researching for as long. We don't understand as well. But I think what's really exciting is it gives us a different way of looking at what's going on in the body, both in terms of monitoring what's going on, but also in terms of um, affecting the body. So neuromodulation is generally about stimulating different parts of the nervous system using 
either implanted or external devices. So you're kind of applying additional electricity into the body at, small, at you know, low levels in order to have some impact. So one of the most well-known examples of neuromodulation technology is cardiac pacemakers. So they work by applying electricity at the right time, in the right way, to the right place to keep the heart going in a, in a more healthy pattern. Another example would be cochlear implants. So where there's something that, you know, isn't working properly through the ear, you can actually stimulate the auricular nerve directly. And that, again, that kind of overcomes some deficiency, some challenge in the physiology. There are other types of neuromodulation as well that are a little bit less commonly known. So you can get spinal cord stimulators, which really help with chronic pain, particularly back pain or lower limb pain. So effectively that you end up with this kind of extra level of electricity, extra signals going on, which disrupt the kind of abnormal pathways of the pain. So it, it effectively kind of drowns out the pain with other signals that are in the way and kind of disrupts the pathway. You can also get deep brain stimulators where you put some uh, kind of, I can see you nodding there. <laughs> so where, yeah. where you put um, small electrodes into the kind of middle of the brain and regularly apply little pulses of electricity has been shown to have a huge impact on patients with Parkinson's disease to, to really, in some cases, remove their tremor completely. It's not a cure for the disease. It only kind of treats the symptoms, but it treats the symptoms that for many people are the kind of most challenging part of living with Parkinson's on a day-to-day -day basis. And there are lots of other applications that are still in research stages that aren't kind of out in the market yet, but that might well be coming over the next kind of 5, 10, 20 years. So it's a it's a pretty exciting space, I think, partly because, like I say, it's, it's a completely different way of interacting with the body compared to pharmaceuticals. And it has a different profile of side effects and it gives people an alternative, particularly for diseases that are not well treated at the moment. That's so interesting. And you kind of mentioned a little bit about like some examples of how this could be used for patients with certain types of diseases or something like that. But where exactly would neuromodulation be considered in the patient process? Will they already have taken different pharmaceuticals? What process would actually be considered? Yeah, so in terms of the kind of medical applications of neuromodulation, it would generally be a last resort. So pharmaceuticals would usually be given first. Take the example of, of Parkinson's. Levodopa is a very commonly available drug. So patients would take that first. They would vary that dosage in order to kind of try to manage their symptoms. And it would only be if the pharmaceuticals stop being effective. So over time, the body often acclimatizes and kind of need a higher and higher dose to get the same effects. So if it gets to the point where you can't have a helpful effect anymore, or if the side effects are so strong that people refuse to take the drugs, which, which can happen as well. So for cases like Parkinson's or epilepsy, or to be honest, almost any indication, the drugs would still be the first port of call because there are fewer risks overall, right? So these neuromodulation devices are implantable devices. So they're always going to come with the risk of a general anesthetic and of having a surgery. So they are rarely the first port of call. But having said that, for cases where the pharmaceuticals stop working or where the side effects are just too strong and, and people aren't, aren't able to tolerate them, it's a really useful alternative. Awesome. 
And you're kind of mentioning how some of these devices and what to make them a little bit risky and why it's a last resort is because they're implantable. But I was wondering, I know that I've read about some not like some non-invasive neuromodulation devices. Can you go through like some examples of what might be invasive and what might be non-invasive neuromodulation devices? Yeah, of course. So in terms of non-invasive neuromodulation, there are some devices that you can kind of use through the skin. So a TENS device is a classic, quite low cost device. It's been around for a while. It can help with milder levels of pain. It's often used actually as a, a form of pain relief during childbirth. It doesn't work to the same level as some of the other methods you can use, but it's, it, it's something that's non-invasive. You can turn it on and off. So you can kind of turn off the effects very quickly as well, which is obviously different to pharmaceutical. So TENS device would be one example. There are also other kind of non-invasive devices you can use to stimulate some of the facial nerves. So there are devices that can help with uh, kind of blocked sinuses or sinus pain. There's also the vagus nerve, which runs down the side of your neck from below your ear down towards your chest, which is also quite close to the surface of the skin. So it's something that you can access through the skin. Now, there's always a balance I think for in a couple of different areas for for the medical space as to whether something invasive or non-invasive is better of course something invasive always comes with the risks of a surgery on the other hand you can then forget about it so once something's been implanted you can kind of forget about the fact that you you don't have to remember to take drugs every day you don't have to remember to kind of hold a device up to wherever it is your face your back and apply stimulation every day it doesn't have to get in the way of you kind of leading your daily life so plus if you've got an implantable device you can generally get closer to the target so you're you're able to be more specific about where you're stimulating you can kind of optimize that therapy more easily to give the maximum therapeutic effect for the minimum side effects which is just more difficult to do with a non-invasive device plus there are some areas that you can't really get to non-invasively so thinking about the brain even the surface of the brain is quite challenging to stimulate non-invasively it can be done through transcranial magnetic stimulation but because you've got to get through the skull it's not a very easy thing to do certainly it's not a very easy thing to target specific locations and once you start looking at the deeper brain regions like those that are impacted by parkinson's disease you're not really going to get there non-invasively So there are some parts of the body that you can only really get to with an implant. Yeah. Has there been any innovations with non-invasive technologies to make them more sensitive? As you said, like getting to those places of the brain where Parkinson's affects sounds very hard if you don't go invasively, but have there been any innovations or new improvements to make non-invasive more sensitive and more accurate? Yeah, there has been. So one area is, I mentioned kind of transcranial magnetic stimulation, TMS. There's been continuing research and and gradual improvements in terms of the different coils that you can use. So you build up different shapes of coils, which have different effects, and then you can turn them on and off in different proportions so that you can start directing it a little bit more. The other method that, that is sometimes used is ultrasound stimulation. And again, having a single ultrasound transducer, you can kind of 
change depth and that's about it and you can kind of change the location a little bit but once you start having arrays of ultrasound transducers then you can kind of balance them out so that you have both constructive and destructive interference so that you can kind of get a, a much tighter maximum uh, stimulation in, in one location so these things have been improving in terms of the brain, there's the particular challenge of how do you know you're in the right place and how do you, you know, setting all of that up is quite a big deal. So when you're setting up kind of uh, ultrasound systems, which which can be used also for uh, not just for stimulation in order to you know kind of change the electrical signals, but you can also use it for ablation. So essentially for surgery, non-invasive surgery, which is sounds a bit counterintuitive, but effectively it allows you to kind of have a permanent surgery in the brain without having to go through the skull so you remove some of those risks of you know what if I cut into a blood vessel and the healing time as well to kind of open up the skull and the scalp um there's obviously a quite quite a considerable healing time afterwards for that you can kind of get around those but then you have to be really sure that you're going for the right place the right location so generally those kind of procedures are always done in mri scanners and they're kind of looking live to see am i in the right place am i in the right place okay i'm sure i'm in the right place now i'm going to increase the amount of energy that i'm putting in gradually because once you've done an ablation you can't go back so there have definitely been been some improvements going on in that space but I, as I say I think there's there's still some just fundamental limitations that means that it is useful in some in some cases and actually I think depression is a really interesting area where it is the surface of the brain that seems to be most impacted or closely correlated with some of the symptoms of depression not necessarily the deep areas so that's why so TMS fascinating yeah so TMS is used for depression rather than for you know movement disorders like Parkinson's because you've got quite a widespread stimulation it's not very specific it's quite a kind of wide area of the brain that you're stimulating but you're stimulating it all kind of at the same time and that seems to make a, a real difference for people suffering from depression so there are there are some diseases that are much easier to tackle with non-invasive stimulation than others Got it. Yeah, that's definitely very, very interesting. It's going to be really cool to see those technological advances with those non-invasive devices. And also just overall with all of the devices for neuromodulation, I can definitely see a lot of improvements being made and a lot of growth being in that area. So we can definitely develop more products. And I'm actually very curious to know, what do you think excites you most about the future of neuromodulation and getting these like devices out to the public? I think what excites me most is just providing more options for patients and for clinicians in order to help more people live a better life. And whether that's living a longer life or just having a higher quality of life during the time that they have, I think that's kind of what motivates me. That's what drove me into this space in the first place. That's kind of what I love about my job is helping to develop devices that really make a difference to people's lives and particularly for patients who don't have good alternatives. Yeah, there's so many options. It's so crazy just the amount of impact that can be made. I think that that's really what excites me as well. Learning about it just so many big problems can be addressed by using neurotech. It's actually so crazy. And as Sierra said, the more innovation that happens, the more we'll see these kind of applications arise. Another thing I wanted to touch on was the process of 
bringing a product idea to life and onto the market and what that process is like at TTP, since that is a big part of what you do. So what kind of needs to happen to then bring this research paper, this patent or this clinical trial then to an actual product that can be used on the market or I guess used for clinical trials as well? Yeah. So I think the first thing is usually identifying a need and a general way of, of approaching that need, a general way of solving that need. So identifying here is a disease that is not well serviced. What is the commercial opportunity? Because ultimately, of course, we're motivated by helping people. But if something isn't commercially sustainable, then it's never going to reach the patients that need it. It's, it's a kind of an unfortunate reality of the world we live in is the, the kind of commercial side matters. And that was one of the other things I think in academia, it gets glossed over quite often that actually things need to be financially sustainable. Things need to make economic sense as well as scientific sense for them to make a real impact in the long term. I think in industry, that's a little bit more front and center. So in most cases, products first start with you know, here's a here's a need. Here's something that patients are really struggling with and that there isn't a good solution at the moment or the existing solution is too expensive for most people to access or has challenging side effect profile. So what is the opportunity? How many patients are suffering from this? Is that enough to make make it viable for a company to um, spend many millions of dollars developing a new device? It's, you know, it's not a cheap thing to do. So identifying kind of what is that need and what is the mechanism of action? Why do we think that a particular device will help or a particular approach will help? So often that starts with, sometimes that starts in academia, actually, coming out of research and coming out of small animal trials or coming out of some kind of other forms of research. Sometimes it's a starting point is a product that's already on the market and you're, and you're thinking well you know here's a here's a device but actually if we could make it smaller then we could implant it in a different part of the body and it could have a, a different impact so what can we do to make the the battery for example much smaller or to not need the battery at all and to power it externally so sometimes it's more about a shift adapting something that already exists in a way that enables something new something different something better so to start with you kind of need that idea and then you need to convince yourself that it's a real thing so we call that a kind of um, proof of concept or feasibility stage where we've got a hypothesis we think we know that a particular treatment works in a certain way and that if we can if we can manage to get this amount of energy, this waveform in this place, then it will work. So there's a there's often a kind of proof of concept phase where we're picking out, okay, what's the riskiest thing? What's the thing that might not work? Okay, let's just try it. Let's let's see what we can do to kind of reduce that risk. Sometimes we do that at TTP. Sometimes we run computer simulations, for example, to see if something is really possible that we think is possible. Sometimes our partners kind of run early animal studies to check if, if we do this in a really crude way. We have lots of wires, we have lots of kind of big pieces of kit. It's like lab equipment. But if we do this, does this have an impact on the particular disease that we're studying? And then once we kind of understand how it will work and what it is we need to build, then we move into that product development cycle. And again, there's a few different stages to it. So often we're kind of designing 
we have to kind of put together all the building blocks in order to make the thing. And then we have to, especially if it's an implant, miniaturize it and design <laughs> all of the details, right? So there's a few different stages that we go through. And again, it's all about reducing that risk one step at a time. So you kind of want to design something for an animal study, which doesn't have to be tiny. It can be quite a big thing just to check that the whole thing works. And then as soon as you start moving towards first in human device, you need to be very conscious about the safety of the thing and also the regulations around it and the regulations are there for good reasons so there are a lot of check boxes that you need to tick before you can put something in a human for good reason and those things are reasonably clearly laid out in in the regulatory frameworks so you there's the kind of a process that's laid out for you on on how to do that um so yeah working working through the working through all of that really I, it might sound simple but obviously there's it, it takes a lot of time to get all of that done and then moving towards animal studies human studies and then larger human studies to demonstrate efficacy of the treatment to bodies like the fda and also to get reimbursement codes so you need to demonstrate to whoever's going to be paying for these devices that they're worthwhile no, it sounds very complicated. Like how long would a process like that take to actually go from idea to a product that is FDA approved and could be tested on humans? So I think for a non-invasive device, the fastest I've seen is about two or three years. Oh, wow. that's, the fa- that's the fastest I've seen. For an implantable device, I mean, I have seen it take, there are companies where it's taken about 15, 20 years. Wow. Yeah, that is a long time. Yeah. <laughs> it, it depends how novel it is. So that's where you've got a completely new way of treating a disease that's not been proven before. So you've really got to go through every stage of the trials. For the FDA, there's two routes that you can go through. There's a de novo route, which is when you have a new therapy for something where you really need to prove that it works, how well it works, and that it's safe as well. And there's also a, another route called the 510K route, which is where you're bringing a device to market, which is very similar or equivalent to something else that's already on the market. So it's the equivalent of having like a, a generic drug. So the first company has had to prove that this drug works and has had to run huge clinical trials in order to prove that on a population level, this works and that the side effects are worthwhile for the benefit that you get. And then once that runs out of pattern, you get these generics companies coming in, offering the same chemical mixtures, the same pharmaceuticals, the same same active ingredients for a fraction of the cost. And that's basically because most of the cost is not in making the drug. Most of the cost is in developing it. And for drugs, uh, I mean, you test millions of different drugs for one that gets to market. So you're not only paying for all of the research you've done on the one that gets to market, you're also paying for all of the failed trials that you've done at the same time. And if you're the generics company and you wanna be the second company to market a particular drug, you haven't got to take that risk. You know that it's gonna work. So yes, maybe you have to do a small study to prove that the thing you're selling is equivalent to the one that's already on the market, but that's a relatively small, cheap study to do compared to the original ones. And it's a little bit like that in the device space as well. The development cost is still a bit higher compared to for a generic drug, um, I believe, but the, the fact that you have confidence that it's going to work and somebody else has done the really big, really expensive trial. So all, all that you need to do 
in, all in quotation marks, is demonstrate that your device is substantially equivalent in all the kind of important ways to the device that's already on the market. And that means that your clinical trials might be several years shorter and you don't need to enroll as many people. So that, And that's where so much of the cost goes. It's in running those clinical trials. So I think um, I was chatting to a VC recently who was saying uh, for an entrepreneur should expect to spend $100 million to get a new device to market. Wow. And of that, that is, you know, yeah. you might you might be talking five or 10 million to develop the device and loads of it is just in that testing of the device and getting it through the trials. And that's before you get into the cost of marketing and sales, which comes later. So it's an expensive endeavor. But when you look at the kind of healthcare economics and you look at the impact you can have, if, if there's something that, if this is a device that's going to make a big impact to people, then people are willing to pay for those devices. And if there is a big enough market and enough people suffering from them, then these kind of investments do get paid back over, over a number of years. But yeah, they are, they are large numbers. For sure. Yeah. And I can only imagine that there's a lot of people helping make this process possible. I mean, you said you mentioned some of the people being developed the clinical trials and just there's a whole bunch of people in helping develop the system. So can you like walk me through a little bit? What kind of people are needed at each step of the process to actually make this whole thing get from proof of concept that like hypothesis and idea to going past FDA approval and actually going to the market? Yeah. So at the beginning, you need scientists and engineers. So how do you understand what's going on, turn that understanding into product requirements at a user level? So what does the patient care about? What does the clinician care about? And then also at a technical level. So what does that mean? What current are we going to need? What voltage is this going to be? What are the specific numbers that we need to design for? And then you then there's a, a large piece of work around the engineering. Um, it'll depend on the device itself as to whether you need more mechanical engineers or electronic engineers or software engineers. But there's a real kind of mixture there of different engineering skill sets to design the, the thing. And then you go into the, the kind of trials. And also, I think at, hopefully alongside that engineering, you're already thinking about what's the regulatory path? What does this mean from a quality perspective, from a regulatory perspective, and from a commercial perspective as well? So how are we going to get this through the FDA to be approved? But also, how are we going to get this through Medicare, Medicaid, or private insurers, how are we going to get this reimbursed? So are there already reimbursement codes we can use? Are we going to have to create our own new reimbursement code? Because that's a big ask. That's kind of like a, another FDA study almost. So you, you kind of want to be already planning ahead because if you know what it is you're going to be testing for, then you can design the right thing in the first place. So a real mixture there of the different stages that you need to go through then you have the clinical trials themselves so you, you this kind of clinical trial coordinators for running that plus of course all of the people involved in actually running that trial whether that's animal handlers or whether that's actually really on the human side so all of the people who are actually going to be bringing in the patients, recruiting the patients, talking to the patients, getting their permissions, doing the procedure, whether that's an implanted device or a, a surgical procedure or whatever it might be. Uh, and then also collecting the data and passing that back. So there's kind of a, a science study that's happening there. 
And then you have to go through, submit all of that data to the FDA. So there's a whole regulatory piece there as to which route you take, what data you need to collect, what data you present to them, how you present it to them. Quite a lot of storytelling involved in that, actually. I think it's quite interesting to hear sometimes the things the FDA does care about and the things the FDA cares less about compared to expectations. That's not an area I have firsthand experience of, so I'm always interested to hear some of those secondhand stories. And then once you've got it approved, that's in some ways, that's only the start of the journey, because just because something's been approved doesn't mean that anybody in the rest of the world knows that it exists or knows how to get hold of it. So that's when things start getting really expensive, because that's when you have to start marketing. And whether you're marketing direct to consumers or whether you're marketing to clinicians, to surgeons, in both cases, it's expensive. And having those sales channels ready and also the the kind of support once you've sold a device, training the surgeons how to use it and training the users how to use it as well. So even if you have an implant, there's often a small amount of adjustment that you can do yourself at home. So something like pain, depending on whether you're sitting on the sofa for a day or sitting in a car or walking around, you might need slightly different levels of stimulation. Parkinson's is a disease that can vary really quite a lot from one day to the next. So being able to increase or decrease the stimulation to balance that treatment versus side effects is something that a patient is able to do a little bit of themselves and their clinician can do a lot more more detail on that. So having that support, there are kind of field reps whose job it is, is to support patients to manage their devices over time. So there are a huge number of different skill sets that go into getting a product all the way to market. Yeah. And as we've mentioned, like this whole process is just, it, it can be a lot and it can take years even just to see through this whole entire process. And so I'm kind of wondering now that you're leading teams working on different products in the neuromodulation, neurotech space, how exactly do you keep yourself motivated to keep going on? Although progress is Sometimes or some days it could be incremental, some days it could be huge. How do you honestly keep yourself motivated when there's such a long journey ahead? Yeah, there's a couple of levels to that. So um, one level is actually just the people you're working with. So having a great team around you, both within the company that we're at at TTP, we've got a great team and also the clients that we work with. So we, we want to be doing things for each other. We want to be helping our clients. We want to be seeing steps being taken. So, you know, you, you put certain milestones in for yourself so that you, you make sure you're on track towards the big picture. So there are definitely things you tick off along the way and recognize that you're making progress. I think for me, the even bigger one, though, is... One of one of the things that we regularly do during the product development cycle is what we call user studies. So making sure that we properly understand what does a user want, but also what does a user need? What is most important to them in a product? How do we make sure that when we get this product to market, that it, it is actually what they want to use and that it actually gets used and continues to be used? And as part of that, we're talking to people who are genuinely suffering from the diseases that we're trying to treat and showing them concepts at different stages of detail, but talking to them about the things thing that we are developing and getting their feedback on it. 
And that feedback is also incredibly inspiring. So hearing, yes, if, if, if you can make this tremor go away, of course I will use this device. And um, this would make such a big impact to me. I think just hearing some of that feedback is incredibly motivating. And it kind of reminds us of why we're doing this, why we're spending this time, why we're putting so much effort into, into these things. And it's, for me, it really comes down to what we can do to help people at the end of it. And kind of reminding ourselves of that is, is always a, a helpful thing during that process. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good point. User studies, that makes a lot of sense to me. And that's, yeah, that's very helpful. Another case, so kind of looking at it, neurotech in general, I think that there's these two main, almost like buckets that neurotech can be used in. So one is in healthcare, like we've talked about for Parkinson's and um, pain and all of these things in the healthcare space. But then I also know there's more consumer-based products, which I think is getting a bit larger now. So things like uh, meditation and sleep wellness. So could you walk us through a few examples of applications in that more like product consumer-based bucket and what some examples of neurotech devices in that bucket might be. Yeah, so EEG is one of the main technologies that gets used in the consumer space. So that's the, the kind of electrical sensors that you typically wear across your forehead or over your over your head as a, as a helmet from a research setting. And these, these sensors are getting kind of cheaper and cheaper. So it's becoming easier and easier to develop low cost products that you can buy for a couple of hundred dollars that you can you can wear as part of a, a soft headband, for example, if you're going to go to sleep with it, or I've seen them kind of included into earbuds sometimes as well. So so that you can start recording some data from your brain activity. I think the challenge with doing it in a consumer facing way is that the quality of the data is generally pretty low. So if you're doing EEG in a research setting, you have 100 sensors and you have gel between the sensor and your skin to make sure that you get a really good electrical contact and that you don't get too much noise and that you don't get it kind of moving around your hair and then get this noise in the background. And who wants to like put gel on their head when before you go to sleep or like when you're about to, to meditate or whatever it might be? So it's kind of just messy. So there have been some advances in making dry electrodes and what can you do to change the material or the shape of the tip so that you can get a slightly better contact than you would otherwise. And things have been improving, but there's still, you know, there's a reason why researchers always use gel and it's to get better data. And there's a reason why researchers use a cap with a hundred different channels and it's to get better data. Um, so yes, you can definitely do this at a, a kind of lower level. You can use four electrodes instead of 100, and that gives you coverage over a smaller part of the brain. But that's okay if you're only looking at concentration or meditation, or you know, it depends what you're looking for. So yes, there are headbands, like Muse is one. There are several others, which you can buy for a few hundred dollars. And there are things that you can genuinely interpret from data that's collected from your forehead from four electrodes so I'm, I'm not suggesting that there is nothing there but I think 
there's a limited number of things that you can realistically interpret with that, particularly in a kind of plug and play way. So it has to work for whoever picks this up out of the box. It has to work quickly. People don't want to spend an hour calibrating it, figuring out how to wear it. So it needs to be something that's easy to use and low cost. And that just means you've got constraints. So I think the, the applications that I've seen so far are really around concentration because that's what you can measure from your forehead, which from the kind of prefrontal cortex, which does, you know, it doesn't matter that you have hair, the hair isn't going to be in the way. And it's something that you can do that's, that's quite um, distributed, it's quite broad. So it doesn't, you don't need to get the electrodes in an exact location. You can kind of go, well, anywhere over the forehead is probably going to be quite good. And you can measure the, the balance of some of the different frequencies at which your brain thinks effectively so you've got kind of alpha beta gamma um delta waves and those change during different levels of concentration they change while you're meditating and they change during different levels of sleep as well and i think that's why the applications that you see for consumer are all really focused around either sleep or concentration i think it's just a pragmatic what can you achieve with cheap sensors that don't need gel. <laughs> yeah, like it'll be exciting as research progresses to see how that impacts the consumer products and to see if there is a way to get the same efficiency and get the same data as clinical trials do and then see that in more like consumer-based products. And then the other thought I had is who owns the data that is being collected by something like the Muse headband, for example, or any of these consumer-based products? And then how can we protect, because I know that that's been another controversy or like issue in neurotech is how can we keep security and privacy of data safe for everybody involved in it? Yes, it's a great question. And I think it's something that the medical space is still coming to terms with, actually. Because in the past, it was assumed that whoever collects the data owns it. But I think it's also been, been recognized, particularly in terms of kind of recent clinical trials and things, that the person whose data you're collecting should absolutely have a say. And oh, yeah. these days, the, you know, the, the forms that you sign, the permissions that you give, you're handing over permission to use your data. But usually you also retain the, you know, you retain the right to withdraw that permission. You can withdraw from a clinical study anytime during the study. Often you can actually withdraw after it's finished as well. If you if you decide for whatever reason, no, I don't want to be part of this. I don't want you to have access to my data anymore. But it's challenging because there's you know, there, there are volumes of data that are being stored, that are being interpreted using quite large algorithms. It's not always the most straightforward thing in the world to find all that data, let alone delete it. So I think this is a space that particularly in neurotechnology where there is an additional level of concern, particularly when you're talking about the brain as to, well, if, if you can read my brain data, can you read my thoughts? What, yeah. what do you know about what's going on in my brain? Now, I believe we're quite a long way away from being able to do that. I don't think we're like kind of there yet. But nonetheless, there's a there's a genuine concern amongst people around what can you learn from this data? And if it's valuable, whose is it? Who's earning money from this data? Who, who has access to it? Who owns it? And 
I think that's still being discussed quite a lot at the moment. I think generally the, the, the kind of emerging view is that it should be owned by the individuals, but the other, that it's reasonable for companies to have access to it. And actually, a lot of the time, the value from data, it doesn't come from the raw data. The value comes from the analysis that you do on large data sets. Selling one person's data, there is a bit of value in it, but there's not a lot of value in it. But selling 10,000 people's data that's been collected in the same way, there's a lot of value in that. And then in the analysis that you've done on it, maybe you're running machine learning algorithms um, they're everywhere these days uh, you know having run through a, a bunch of different models and having developed your own algorithms to interpret the data that you're seeing and to turn that into something actionable that's where the kind of big value lies so i think it's it's still it's still being worked through almost as to what best practices but yeah you know, there's a general feeling that it's the individuals that own the data but it's the companies that turn the data into something valuable. And therefore it's reasonable for those companies to make profits based off other people's data because they have genuinely added value to, to that raw data that they've collected. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, like you said, it's so complicated. We're still trying to figure it out because there's just been a lot of change and more awareness towards the status security and kind of who owns it. So I can definitely see where that gets a little bit complicated for sure. I mean, overall, in this whole episode, we talked a lot about the different components of neurotechnology as a whole, specifically with like medical and also with some consumer stuff. And there's a lot of different things that you have to take into consideration when obviously doing research in the field and trying to build products that get to the market for, in the end, consumers. And so in itself, it can definitely be daunting going into this huge, massive field. What advice would you give to people specifically who are interested in getting into the neurotech field, but find it a little bit daunting or a little bit hard to actually see themselves being successful in the space? Yeah, so I would say take it a step at a time. So we've been talking a lot about the kind of eventual products that end up on the market. So things like, you know, a spinal cord stimulator to, to help treat pain. That's like a really complex, really expensive, really big thing that takes many years to develop. But there are so many cool things that you can do that are so much smaller <laughs> and more immediate. So I would say there are quite a lot of resources around, actually, that can help you learn about the nervous system, learn about the brain, and also to start to to start to get involved and, and kind of have a play with some of these things. So we've talked about EEG and the fact that these, these are not expensive sensors. So yes, you can buy something like a Muse headband. They tend to be quite locked down actually in terms of what you can do because they, they're intended to be really easy for consumers to use, take out of the box, put on, link it up to an app and make it really easy to use. That's not the same as making it easy to play with or to hack, right? So one really good set of resources is at neurotechx.com, both in terms of helping people to learn about neurotechnology and learn about the different kind of aspects of that. They also run hackathons. They also provide links to hardware that you can buy that you can actually kind of play with yourself. So OpenBCI is a company that provides EEG kits that you can kind of 
by they're very modular so you can kind of choose how many sensors do you want do you want to add more sensors later how do you link them up but the nice thing with those is that you you, you're in full control of the data like you very much own that data you can plug that into your laptop you can say that you can do what you like with it whereas with headsets like news yes data is being collected but it's already being interpreted for you and it's not straightforward to get access to that raw data so there are kits like OpenVCI that are affordable that you can buy for yourself and have a play with and certainly if you're into coding there is like a lot of fun stuff you can do with that so even with even with the kind of consumer basic sensors you can you put together a, a game of pong where depending on whether you are opening or closing your eyes or relaxing or concentrating on different things um or whether you're moving your left hand or your right hand or thinking about moving your left hand or your right hand you can kind of make some basic yes no up down left right decisions so there, there is definitely some some kind of things that you can play with that are at a much more accessible level and so much of neurotechnology these days is about the data and the algorithms there's there's a hardware part absolutely and that's kind of where I've spent a lot of time focusing is the device end but there's also a huge amount of data being collected and algorithms around how do you interpret the data how do you decide what the right stimulation waveform is how do you decide what the right waveform is for this particular person at this point in time so how do you go from the data you're collecting and turning that into a kind of an actionable insight and then a stimulation paradigm so there's a lot that's on the, the data science and on the software side as well and and that's that's the kind of thing that you can also you can get big data sets online and have a play with them and play around with with things that are, that are open source. It's so exciting because it's so accessible. We'll link that down below the link that you mentioned. And I just I love it. If somebody Sierra and I are like our age, we can like we have friends who have done similar things as well. As you said, coding, there's so many options. And that's so neat to see, especially in a technology where it's new and where it is traditionally very hard. It's like it is pretty easy to get into which is so yeah. cool i mean there are universities that that put on like um drone races where you're literally controlling drones with eeg headsets and that it's like how so how cool. fast can you get this drone from one side of a hall to the other side of the hall or how how fast can you get a car around like a simple little race course um purely controlling it through through that headset so there's some really like fun things that that wow. are going on that, that hopefully or that are, that are trying to be really accessible so that people can take that first step and I mean I got into this space because like basically because I thought brains were cool and I wanted to learn more about how they work and I've only learned a tiny amount more about how they work because there's so much more that we just don't know yet that even learning some of those small things I just I find it fascinating I find it really exciting and just genuinely just interesting it kind of just serves my curiosity I'm a very curious person that's why I got into science I love asking questions I love asking but why but how and just following those questions through whether that's through research papers whether that's through kind of talking to people whether that's through seeing yes kind of just learning about how these things work setting up your own experiments that's what I love during my PhD I could ask these questions People didn't know the answers yet. I was like, can I have a go? Can I try this? So that was really good fun. Um, so yeah, for me, it's really those, those two things, the kind of curiosity of just learning about stuff and then the how do you turn that into a real impact to people? Oh, I love that so much. I love that. 
Okay, we have one last question. If you had a magic wand, and if this magic wand could give you the power to change or improve anything in the world, just with a flick of your wrist, what would you use this magic wand to change or improve? I know it's that a fun is, question. <laughs> that's a, such a huge question. I, 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 I barely know where to start. Um, <laughs> I think one of the most challenging things in the world at the moment is the the level of inequality that we have between different parts of the world i don't know how we resolve that but i think that's that's something that i i care a lot about so finding some way to beyond just healthcare you know yes we should make healthcare more accessible to people from from all around the world but that's that's only one small part of <laughs> of, the, of the challenge there's so much more that people need access to food water sanitation and i guess the other the other big one is um climate change at the moment i mean right now we're seeing relatively small changes that are already having a large impact in parts of the world and that looks like it's only going to get worse so what can we do to slow down and maybe eventually start to reverse some of that and again I think one of the things that really strikes me about that is that the biggest impacts already are being felt by people who already have plenty of problems that they're dealing with so countries like Bangladesh are already being impacted by climate change way more than people in the US, people in Europe, and they've got so many more problems already to be dealing with. So I, I think, yeah, what, what can we do about climate change? What can we do in all the other industries that moves a step at a time towards that? And yeah, I think inequality would be the, the, the really big one for me. Oh, I completely agree. Yeah. Yes, I love that so much. And Hannah, it was amazing having you on the show. We talked about your switch from research to product and how it all started with your really big interest in physics and wanting to have more impact. And then come you going to TTP and like working on different projects with drug delivery devices and monitoring systems. We talked a little bit about like, you know, neuromodulation and some examples of that, the invasive and non-invasive side of things. We touched on also just some innovations in, in those different types of devices, how to go from proof of concept to actually manufacturing in that big process in itself, the kind of people that you need for it. And then we can move a little bit into like consumer-based products, challenges with those data, and then how young people can get into neurotech. And I also loved your answer to our last question about the magic wand. Super, super interesting. And again, yeah, super important. So overall, thank you so much for coming on the show. So many insights. It was an incredible episode. It's been great to chat to you, Ray. Thank you for having me.